1: Hey, all you true crime fans, this is
0: Mike Ferguson.
1: And this is Mike Morphe. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology.
0: Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons.
1: We dive into a variety of cases in both the U.S. and abroad.
0: Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of, like the Pocatello babysitter murders or the Canal murders.
1: Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime, like the Tylenol murders and the Lindbergh kidnapping. We also dive into cases that are currently
0: breaking thanks to DNA and forensic genealogy. Sometimes you'll hear from people connected to the cases, like the interview we did with the brother-in-law of the Golden State killer, Joseph DeAngelo.
1: There are 200 episodes of criminology available to binge on right now, including full seasons covering the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy. And new
0: episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On a Saturday evening, the 17-year-old girl hopped in her car to meet her friends for a fun night out, planning to make it home by her midnight curfew. But by 3 a.m., when she hadn't arrived home, Her panicked mother called 911, reporting her daughter missing. While the police weren't concerned initially, a discovery just several hours later would drastically change everything. This is the Crystal Fay Todd story. Amy. Hi, Megan. I am looking at my book right now. I'm very excited. I have selected my first book for the True Crime Book Club that we are now doing for patrons. It is Irreparable by Mark Gerardo. Have you heard of this one? I think I know the case that
1: it's written about, but I've never read the book.
0: The case is unbelievably mind-blowing, and this book, I am just tearing through it. I'm going to be sending patrons um, more specific details, so please stay tuned and get excited about this book. It's really, uh, for me, it's become a a page-turner, and I'm just going to literally finish it, I think, like right after this. Amy, I think you also have something to announce as well, right?
1: Yes. And for those patrons who are not into book clubs or who want even more content in addition to the book club, my next lecture will be in September and I will be focusing on an area that's very dear to me, which is inaccurate eyewitness identification. Megan, as you know, I wrote my master's thesis on this topic and it was an area I was very interested in. So I'll be focusing on the problems, procedures, and reforms associated with eyewitness identification. So keep an eye out for that as well.
0: And that that recently came up in an episode that we just released, the Melinda Elkins one. At the heart of the case was uh, eyewitness misidentification, right? Yes, and also Jennifer Thompson.
1: There are several cases that we've covered that our listeners have probably heard little tidbits about this topic. So we'll definitely be doing a deep dive.
0: Oh, that's going to be a great class, Amy. I know that's one of your passions.
1: Maybe you'll come this time, Megan.
0: Well, you told me not to come, and now you keep telling people I'm not showing up, so you better <laughs> shut up. <laughs> All right. Well, that's great news. Um, before we get to today's episode, we have some supporters we'd like to thank. Amy? All right. First, we
1: have Lizzie Howard from the UK, and she will be traveling to Australia and joined Patreon because she needs more episodes for her flight. Very Oh, jealous. very cool. Yes. Thank you. Uh, we also have Maritza from Austin, Texas, Sarah Kaye. Bree, who owns a mommy and son store called Jewels and Company Boutique, and she listens at work. We also have Lauren, and as for her request, her husband bought her a Patreon subscription for her birthday. Way to tell someone happy what you birthday. want. <laughs> yes, happy birthday. Melissa, a.k.a. Melly Moments. Jackie and Pam Gordon. Megan, who
0: else do we have? Kaylee Parker. Victoria Glazier. Caitlin Hawkins. Muriel from Switzerland. Sarah Arthur, also known as Sadie. Amy Higgin Botham. <laughs> Thank God she wrote like Gotham City. Christina War and also Jen. Thank you to everyone for your support. We appreciate it so much. And I am very eager to get into a case today that was brought to us by a listener. Well, you stumped me. Never heard this case. I hadn't either. And the listener who brought this to us is a cousin of Crystal Faye Todd. Oh, right. And she requested that we cover this case. So I hope she's listening today, and I hope we do this case justice for everyone who was involved and affected by Crystal Fay Todd's story. Crystal Fay was born on January 4th, 1974, in Conway, South Carolina, to Bonnie Todd and her husband, Junior Burt Todd, one of the oldest towns in South Carolina. Conway is a small town of just about 25,000 residents right now. Back in 1991 in Conway, there were apparently just around 10,000 people residing there. So this is a pretty small town. Crystal was your average 17-year-old girl described as being happy, friendly, easygoing, and excited for college. She was an only child, and her father died when she was young, so it was really just her and her mother, and they were very close, Amy. In fact, her mother had just given Crystal a new 1991 Toyota Celica as an early graduation present, and Crystal was just thrilled. Do they even make those anymore? I remember Celicas. I don't know if they do. What was your first car? Do you remember? a uh, Chevy Cavalier. I wanted a cute little Toyota or Nissan, but my mom and dad insisted that I buy my grandfather's car, which was a... Cutlass Supreme Brome. It was like a it was like a boat. <laughs> but it's like cool now. It would be like a classic. No. No, it wasn't cool. It no. wasn't cool then, it wasn't cool now. It was like having a boat. I hated it. Anyway, besides the point. Okay. First world problem. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> sorry. So I, I just remember being excited for my first car mm-hmm. and of course that idea. And and Crystal was, you know, it remi- reminds me mm-hmm. of that because she loved cruising around town in her car, hanging out with her friends. Her car even had her name on the license place. Oh, on the cute. license plate. Mm-hmm. So it was like a vanity plate. There was a time when Crystal got in trouble. She crashed her car after having a couple of drinks and she, you know, she wasn't heavily intoxicated, but she was clearly under the influence. She lost her license in the aftermath for some time, but she wasn't punished very harshly and apparently this was out of character for Crystal, but she learned her lesson, never drinking and driving again. I also want to point out that, so this was the early 1990s, and I think drinking and driving was punished very differently than it is now, because now, I mean, the consequences are pretty extreme, right? You you not only lose your license, they impound your car. Mm-hmm. As I understand it, the average cost of getting a DUI now is about $15,000 or $20,000. Oh, wow. Yeah, because you have to go to court. There's a lot of consequences. That's good to deter I, people, right? I was going to say, Rightfully so. But again, Crystal had learned a lesson, and this was not in her character. But she still liked to go out with her friends to parties, and that's just what she did on a Saturday night in November of 1991. On this night, Crystal left her grandmother's birthday party and went out with her friends to the mall and to a party. But when she missed her midnight curfew, it alarmed her mother, who called 911. Now, some might ask, is that a little too much to call 911 that soon? No, they didn't have cell phones then. She couldn't,
1: like, she'd have no h- way to get in touch with her daughter. She probably panicked.
0: Right. And it was a couple hours after, yeah. I want to point out. Um, as I, from what I reportedly, or sorry, what was reported, I believe she called 911 at 3 a.m. Okay. So, you know, I mean, she knew Crystal. Her, mm-hmm. Crystal didn't miss curfew. And she had that feeling, that mm-hmm. instinct that a parent has. So her mother, because the police weren't really concerned, she began doing what she could do. And at the time, that was calling friends, calling hospitals, and anyone else she could think of who might know Crystal's whereabouts. Bonnie called 911 again at 8 a.m. And this was, you know, five hours later. And at this point, she was really panicked. Mm -hmm. Crystal would not have missed, you know, would not have come home this late. And an officer came to the house this time to take a missing persons report. And by then, you know, Bonnie, as I said, was very upset.
1: I think we've said it a few times, Megan, but when you don't take these things seriously, we know you're missing crucial time by waiting.
0: This is the unfortunate part. You know, you have to wait. It's supposed to be like 24 hours. Unfortunately, if someone's missing and if someone's been abducted, let's say, by a stranger, then they're probably not going to survive that, likely not going to survive that 24 hours. But to play devil's advocate,
1: people... Do sometimes leave on their own accord or she could be with friends and we don't want to waste police resources chasing every
0: kid who stays past curfew. I was going to say, how many times did you miss a curfew? Yeah. Too. I actually did. I only missed curfew a few times. My my mom would have been the same because I was responsible. I enough. didn't have a curfew. So you didn't have a curfew? Did not have a curfew. Wow. OK, well, then I guess your mom would not have been concerned, but nope. OK. I mean, Bonnie was, you know, they were close and she knew her daughter wouldn't do this to her. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, Bonnie's instincts would prove right because very early that next morning, like right after Bonnie had given this missing persons report at 8 a.m., two local hunters found the body of a deceased young woman in a ravine. They had followed a trail of her blood to her body. It appeared that she had been dragged. And that's what I meant. Off by the like tra- a road. There was like a main road. Exactly. So I don't know if it was a main road, but, but it was a road. Uh-huh. Yes. The police arrived on the scene and quickly observed that the young woman appeared to have been sexually assaulted, having been found with her breast exposed and her pants pulled down. Mm. So this is an initial observation, mm-hmm. they have to confirm it, obviously. But she was also stabbed in multiple places and her throat was cut which left both Crystal and the scene just, it was really soaked in blood. Mm. Investigators were able to quickly identify Crystal, though, because she had her high school ring on, and it had her name engraved in it. I know, it is awful. Uh, The police began collecting forensic evidence, including blood from the scene, and they began working on the investigation quickly. That same morning, Crystal's car was found in the parking lot at a local middle school. But her car seemed fine, and her purse and jacket were in it, but they weren't in disarray. It looked like they were kind of placed. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like Crystal had kind of left her car and just gone somewhere, maybe with someone she knew. Mm-hmm. There was no struggle. There was no signs of a struggle or abduction. The interesting thing to me about that, and I understand what it looks like when keys are strewn mm-hmm. or something yeah. falls, but Amy, if I was to go somewhere with someone, and I remember we did this in high school mm-hmm. too. We would like meet in a parking lot and someone hopped in car. car. Uh-huh. Yeah, but I would bring my bag and my jacket. Would you?
1: At least your bag. But then again... I know this sounds crazy, but they didn't have cell phones then, right? So let's say that a friend was meeting you and you were going to leave your car. Maybe you go to a party or, you know, go meet up with some other friends. I would think the most important thing someone would want to bring is their phone. But they didn't have phones then. So maybe she knew she wouldn't need to spend money. Right. And like, what else do you need? Were her car keys found? Her car keys were not in her car. Gotcha. Okay. So it was her purse and it was her jacket. So do you see what I mean? So if you're just planning on going to hang out at a party half hour and then I'm going to come back and get my car, you're in a rush having fun. I don't
0: know. Yeah, I guess also it's different for me. So my bag, and always was, I put my gum, a bottle of water, my mirror, my compact, (laughs) you know, like I I always had a bag and I always had stuff in it. But then I look at it, like my friend Michelle never carries a bag. She puts her cell phone in one pocket and a small wallet in the other. So I guess you could argue that. I, I thought it was odd, but. I do agree with you that it's indicative of
1: her not leaving in a hurry or being caught off guard. It doesn't, at this point, you, you
0: don't see evidence of foul play at that location. Yes, absolutely, okay. Regardless, the police began to look into many leads, bringing in a profiler immediately and working on the autopsy. Crystal was stabbed over 30 times. Yeah. Oh, wow. Personal. Which is indicative, yup, of anger. And it's personal. And these stab wounds were everywhere. Back, face, head. And it was confirmed that she was sexually assaulted as well? Yeah, I'll get to that. Okay. So back, face, head, and chest. So just everywhere. The head is an odd place. You don't usually see stabbings too much to the, to the skull. Yeah. The autopsy revealed several defensive wounds to her hands, but also that, like I said, she'd been stabbed in her skull, which explained why she had defensive wounds to her left hand and arm. Okay, so... You might say, you're looking at me like, what does that mean? All right. So you might have defensive wounds on both, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But are you right-handed? You're right-handed, right? I would know this. I'm like my very best friend. I should know. You would predominantly then defend with your right hand. So they would expect to see defensive wounds Uh especially or more pronounced. Okay. In Crystal's case, there were no defensive wounds to her right hand. And the reason why, those stab wounds to her skull paralyzed her right side. So so she couldn't defend herself. She was forced to use her left. I know. So she was alive, yeah, too, which is that's awful. Awful. I mean, this is an awful crime, Amy. Uh, there were also post-mortem wounds indicating that Crystal's attacker kept stabbing her after she died. Rage Again, killing. rage. Yep. Yeah. The police interviewed people at Crystal's high school, teachers, counselors, and friends of Crystal, but they learned that she was a normal, happy 17-year-old. Who was she with that night? I'm assuming you're going to get into that, but you said she went out with friends. Did she drive herself?
1: Or was she in the car with friends when she left her house?
0: She went to meet some girlfriends. Okay, and yes, they were interviewed, mm-hmm. and they didn't really know anything. She had dropped one of them off. Okay. allegedly, and and gone home right after. Okay, so maybe she met someone else. Possibly. Okay. okay? Uh, again, though, they they're finding. You know, she's just a, she's a normal, happy seventeen year old girl. Do you remember this is the summer before? Also, she went to college. Remember that summer? Oh, yes. I mean, I remember it being such a it was such an exciting time, and I think yeah. she was just really enjoying this last summer with mm-hmm. her friends and getting excited the police did not believe this was a random act though yeah, uh, from happen. what we've said and they were concerned about the type of offender who would commit this crime so the police searched crystal's home her locker her personal things and one of the things they found was a notebook with the name andy Tyndall in it a boy she was dating so who exactly is andy Tyndall? they're thinking it's a classmate right Well, he wasn't a classmate of Crystal's. As it turned out, Andy Tyndall was an older boy, a bodybuilder who had long ago graduated from high school. And I don't think that Crystal or the other people who were hanging out with him knew how old he was, because as it turned out, he was a 30-something-year-old married felon, from Alabama, wanted on a parole violation, and someone who seemed to like younger girls. So I guess they have a suspect? They have a suspect who goes straight to the top of the list. I also remember, by the way, those a uh, couple of guys who would hang around high school girls, they were older, they graduated, but they just didn't seem to be able to connect emotionally, you know, mm-hmm. or otherwise with females their own age. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is a significant age gap. We're not talking about a 20-something-year-old. So Andy does become the prime suspect. And the police begin surveilling him, Amy. But Andy recognizes that he's being surveilled by the police. And he attempted to flee. So he's, he's on the run, basically. Did they have any evidence at this point, other than the fact that it seems a bit shady? No. It, it was just that it seemed shady. But remember what I said, he is a pro violator. So, I don't know if he knew exactly why they were chasing him. He might have thought it was for his parole violation. He was a felon and he's attempting to flee. But he only fled as I read it, like it was kind of like an overnight thing. And he was literally running on foot and became exhausted very quickly. So, he turned himself in. So, Andy turns himself in. He's exhausted. The police interview him, which, you know, he agrees to, and they request DNA. And this is early, Amy. Remember, this is, you know, 1991. Mm-hmm. Andy readily agreed to submit DNA. Uh, again, I think he definitely thought he. was being chased for another crime. And when they told him what it was for, he denied any involvement in Crystal Fetod's assault and murder whatsoever. But the police were pretty confident they had their guy. So what happens with the DNA? See, interestingly, the DNA from the crime scene showed a perpetrator with type O blood. But it was a very unusual and rare profile, which could only be found in one in 250 million white persons or one in 1.5 billion black persons. Okay. And what is
1: the race of Andy? Andy was white. Okay.
0: Um, So it would have to be him out of 250 million. Okay. But the police were pretty confident anyway. And this obviously makes it easier to match to their suspects, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But guess what? It wasn't a match to Andy Tyndall, and police were shocked and frustrated because they didn't have any other leads. Is it possible that it was him and someone
1: else? You see this a lot in wrongful conviction cases, but it could also work the other way. Is it possible
0: it wasn't his DNA, but that doesn't mean he wasn't involved? It certainly was possible at the time, but I don't think police believe that, to okay. be honest. I think they thought this was a single act, a single perpetrator. And once they discounted Andy, I think they put him aside and okay. said no. Good. Um, I mean,
1: they have nothing. They
0: shouldn't continue, right? Right, they didn't have any leads, but that would change because an eyewitness came forward also claiming to have seen an older woman with a man in the parking lot of the middle school where Crystal's car was found. And the forensic sketches of these people were very surprising, Amy, because it looked identical, or maybe not say identical, but very much like Crystal's mother and her boyfriend. However, just to be clear, this eyewitness later admitted to drinking that evening pretty heavily and possibly seeing the pair, like Crystal's mother, on a different day. So essentially, this happens. We've talked about this before. This happens sometimes when eyewitnesses, you know, see someone in the paper, or they hear the story, and they know them, and they've seen them otherwise. Unconscious transference. Exactly. I knew you were going to be able to explain (laughs) that, unconscious (laughs) transference. So they, you know, the witness pretty much said, I think I I saw them, but it was on a different day at a different time. So the witness's account falls apart very quickly. Where did the police go from here? Well, they sought help, again, from the FBI um, with profiling. And the profile indicated that the perpetrator would likely be a young male, Mm -hmm. a friend of Crystal's, who lived close but someone who didn't think he would ever be considered a suspect either. Someone who was also, uh, I think they said, like, strong or, you know, well. No criminal history, it sounds like. No, I don't think they profiled him to have a criminal history. Okay, they have a profile, which may or may not be helpful. You know, a a lot of times profiles are helpful, but sometimes profiles point you in the wrong direction, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have corroborating evidence. Certainly. Meanwhile, the police interviewed hundreds of people. They took DNA samples from 52 of Crystal's classmates and acquaintances. And one of the people police asked for a DNA profile from was named Ken Register. So who is Ken? Ken was one of Crystal's good friends. He served as a pallbearer at her funeral, and he had known Crystal since they were children. So he reportedly referred to her like a sister but some suspected that Ken had stronger and more romantic feelings towards Crystal.
1: Did the two ever date or
0: anything? I believe it was like he had asked her to date and they might have, they either dated very briefly or not at all, but it was very clear that Ken was seemingly interested at some points and maybe multiple points Mm -hmm. in Crystal, but Crystal had even told her mother at some point, like, oh, you know, Ken asked me out again. It made Mm -hmm. me feel uncomfortable. I really, you know, don't want to. They still spent a lot of time together though. They were- Again, reportedly good friends. He had a girlfriend at the time of Crystal's death, mm-hmm. um, but they still spent time together. Ken was uh, a football player. He was also close with Crystal's mother, Bonnie. And he seemingly helped Bonnie through this very difficult time, like coming to her house, checking in on her, asking if he could help with anything she needed. Remember Bonnie? and It was just Bonnie and Crystal. Yeah. So this has really got to be a devastating loss. Ken was also asked, as I said, about giving DNA, as all of these other young males were. But he was reportedly hesitant about giving his DNA. And oddly, he went to Bonnie, Crystal's mother, to talk about this, telling her that the police wanted his DNA, but he didn't trust the test and he didn't want to provide it. And Bonnie, you know, watched an interview, and Bonnie said that she assured him that he was just being ridiculous. Just give your DNA. Mm -hmm. Trust the police because you didn't do anything wrong. Or did he? Right. So Bonnie had an odd feeling after that. Well, she thought it was an odd encounter. She thought he was being... You know, it was just strange. Why wouldn't he volunteer to do this? And so she did actually report this to the police. And the police brought Ken in for questioning. He adamantly denied having done anything to Crystal. Ultimately, he did consent to providing DNA. And remember, this was very early in DNA testing. So Ken didn't really understand DNA, to be quite honest. And that was what, you know, maybe he said to Bonnie too, like, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. He understood that the police could do blood samples and fingerprints, but People just didn't know in 1991 what DNA was and how it worked. And you can't expect a a kid to really have known that. And I have to tell you, the police, you know, I watch interviews, said that they thought he seemed like a pretty normal kid when they met him. They didn't think there was anything sinister or suspicious about Ken. So again, he seemed innocuous to them. And Crystal's mom had even described Ken to the police as someone who would never hurt Crystal or be involved in this. Well, the police were then very surprised when the DNA sample from the crime scene matched Ken. Hmm. And they found out that Ken wasn't as, quote, normal as they thought. You see, Ken had an addiction to pornographic materials. Certainly in itself, that's not criminal. But his addiction escalated because when he was 15, he was caught making calls to a young woman and her mother You could say these were lewd calls and people, you know, have done prank and lewd calls, but these were not inside, you know, what kind of a prank calls because he was describing to this woman and her mother and he kept doing this, how he wanted to sexually assault and kill them, how he would cut them open. I'm assuming the police didn't know it was him at the time or did he get like a summons for it? The women engaged Ken on the phone. I don't think they got a trace or anything like that, but, uh, and I don't know you know, what the protocol would have been in that time. But they felt like it was someone they knew. And so they were trying to get more info, like have him talk. And they finally figured out, they knew the voice. They figured out that it was it was Ken. They knew him from, I think he was, I think he worked in their auto body repair shop. Hmm. or He worked somewhere. Like they figured out who it was. Ken was arrested. But it seemed that the case never went further in the system. Like there was an arrest initially. I don't know if it wasn't taken seriously. It was dismissed. It just didn't. Well, seem he to- was also what sixteen? You said he was fifteen, 15. at the time. 15. Yeah, but I'm know. not saying
1: that's okay. But I'm saying maybe
0: that's why they right. kind of let it go through. Right. But Ken was then caught later at a local college exposing himself in public to two female students. He like basically pulled up in a car next to them and like pretended to ask them a question, and then you know exposed himself. But the girls, one of the girls, got the license plate and reported him to the police, and he was arrested. The charges were pending at the time of Crystal's assault and murder. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Ken is not quite the altar boy that you might mm-hmm. think he was. I also saw that one of the police officers reported on one of the documentaries I watched that Ken mutilated animals. And this was just reporting. No. No, but this was, I I mentioned it, but I just want to say that I couldn't substantiate this anywhere else other than the documentary I saw. So I I wouldn't take that as the big piece of the puzzle. But if if that were in fact true, that's a huge red flag. If that's true, that's going to tell you something very important that we'll talk about later Mm -hmm. as well when we discuss theories. But Ken also had an alibi. His girlfriend said he was with him that evening. They were go-karting a town like 20 minutes away. And his mother said that he was home that evening shortly after midnight. The time frame didn't seem to allow Ken to have been available to commit this crime.
1: But we have to take it with a grain of salt when the only people upholding an alibi are close to the potential suspect. Or close to the suspect.
0: Absolutely. The police were concerned about the alibi, though, because even though they had rock-solid DNA, it's not today, right? DNA was in its infancy, and people didn't understand it. And so the police were very concerned about this alibi possibly discrediting the DNA. Amy, I would say O.J. Simpson was the first big case to really highlight the testing of DNA. And uh, Simpson's defense team was pretty effective, if you remember, at throwing doubt on the evidence that today probably would be seen as conclusive. So I think they had the same concerns. Like Mm -hmm. if people don't understand DNA and they're throwing, casting some shade on this, you know, we need to really get this case in order Mm -hmm. other ways where it's different because today, if you have DNA, you probably think this is going to be a slam dunk, Mm -hmm. right? So that's why they were determined to get a confession out of Ken after they arrested him in February, 1992. Both at the time of his arrest and when he was being interrogated, Ken kept asking for his mother, thinking that she would provide his alibi and get him out of the situation. How old was he at this point? Ken was 18. Okay, so he didn't. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. He didn't need his mother. But also, you know, in some states they can interrogate juveniles. But the police would not let him call his mother. And they would use this to their advantage. They stopped the interrogation at one point to go speak with Ken's mother. They wouldn't let him see her, but they went to. His mother gave them a letter to hand off to Ken. Ken. She didn't want to go to the police station. I don't know why, but her letter said that she loved him. She knew exactly where he was the night of Crystal's murder and she would support him, essentially indicating, of course, I'm going to be your alibi because I know what happened. Mm -hmm. But, Amy, do you think the police gave Ken that letter? Absolutely not. They sure did not. No, they wanted him to sweat. If anything, they said the opposite. Exactly. So instead, they told Ken that his mother had sent a message to the police to tell the truth, Ken. A trick that worked and reminder. Police can lie to you. And maybe in this instance, we see why, you know, I often think it's not, I don't think it's appropriate actually for police to lie, mm-hmm. but then you see when police obtain, when it works, yeah, yeah r- rightful confessions, then you go, oh, well, you know.
1: Yeah, it's tricky. That's what, that whole, is it better to convict an innocent and let a guilty go free? It's like, you, this works, but at the at the cost
0: of what? at what cost. It's very very tricky. So uh, it, my reason is that, you know, I think best practices would probably tell you that, you know, we you shouldn't lie because you do get too many wrongful confessions, but okay. In this case, Ken confessed. But this is what he said. He saw Crystal around midnight in town and their friends and he asked her to hang out. So she parked her car at the middle school and hopped in with him. They were going to go, you know, drive around for a little while mm-hmm. longer. It was almost her curfew, but she still had a little bit of time left, right? Ken claimed that they went to a remote area, had consensual sex, but that Crystal was angry afterwards upon realizing that Ken did not wear a condom and threatened him that if she got pregnant, she would tell everyone he sexually assaulted her. He said that she was yelling. She jumped out of the car like this. And Ken said that this made him snap and he grabbed a knife and stabbed Crystal to death. Why do you have a knife? (laughs) It's a good question. (laughs) He said that he ditched the knife and drove home after frantically. The problem with his story, well, there's many, but I, I sense that you don't believe this story.
1: I do not believe the story.
0: Nope. Nor did I, and nor did the police. And one of the big problems was that his story did not match the crime scene and autopsy results, which showed that Crystal had been brutally raped, but not just raped. She was raped orally, vaginally, and anally.
1: And he didn't mention anything. No
0: account of this whatsoever. So they knew that this was a lie. Ken later recanted the confession because he said he felt coerced by the police trickery, specifically that note that was falsified. Ken was indicted on several charges related to Crystal's sexual assault and murder, but he decided to take his chances at trial. The trial began in January 1993, and the prosecution had two big pieces of evidence. They had the DNA and the confession, so they were feeling pretty good. Now, Ken testified in his own defense. Oh, that's interesting. I know, we don't see that very
1: often. So when he testified, he said he had nothing to do with it or he went with the consensual sex story?
0: Yeah, the defense did not go with Ken's story about consensual sex between he and Crystal and his angry reaction. Rather, they went with the fact that Ken had been with his girlfriend that evening until after 11.30 and arrived home shortly after midnight at about 12, And both his girlfriend and mother testified to these facts so he would have no time at all, to have assaulted and committed this crime and hidden her body. So Ken testified, and from what I read, he wasn't caught in any outright like big lies or anything like that. You know, he stuck to his story, but he was definitely perceived as unemotional and cold. So I don't think he was very likely But if he's innocent, then... That's okay, right?
1: Right. But then again, a friend still died, so you would right. expect something.
0: And the jury's going to perceive you. I mean, we always talk about, you know, if he perce- if he was crying a lot, they might have perceived him as faking or overdoing it or, you know. He couldn't win. That's why you don't take the stand. It's usually why you don't take the stand. But I don't think he was the, the big, the damage to himself. You know, we've seen other people testify who like, like Darlie Rudier. They just did not like her. They felt like she was combatant. You know, they like she kind of almost... They felt damaged herself. Ken testifies he, you know, he's not perceived the best, but he's not caught in any outright lies. Then we had Bonnie Faith Todd, Crystal's mother. She got up on the stand as well. Now, she explained that Ken was one of the first people she called about Crystal, you know, being gone. And this was at 1.13 a.m. And Ken said that he had just gotten home. But that was an hour after he and his mother said he actually got home. So, you know, he's he's contradicting what he earlier had said. And Amy, what's more disturbing is that Ken's mother, Shirley, seemingly had to have either lied about the time he got home. You know, maybe she was sleeping, she didn't have a clue, and she just assumed this. Or as some others have indicated, including Crystal's mother, you know, what she implied, that she might have helped Ken cover up his crime. The reason for this suspicion is that there was, remember I told you about the bloody scene? Mm-hmm. They said he would have been covered in her blood. So if he got home with all that blood on him, surely he would not have been able to hide it from her.
1: Was he with Crystal at all that night by his account or anyone else's account? Or he says... No, he was not. So when Bonnie called him, he was like, I don't know anything about
0: what she's doing tonight. Mm -hmm. I just got home. He was with his girlfriend go-karting for a certain period of time. Gotcha. Okay. Regardless, just so you know, Shirley Register was never tried for a crime and jurors in Ken's uh, trial. Obviously, they didn't believe her story because the jury found him guilty of all charges and sentenced him to life in prison with additional time for the lesser charges. You had asked about his girlfriend. I know that his girlfriend testified. They were together, but the time frame was wrong. And I think that she on the stand, if I'm not mistaken, but I believe that she testified that he actually was more anxious to leave he left earlier than than she had originally said. So his main alibi was really only his mother. His main alibi okay. became really his mother. OK, so he was again, he was facing the death penalty. Just, you know, this was a death penalty eligible case. I think the reason he didn't get death, he got life in prison was probably because of his age. He was 18 years old. And that's, you know, well, on the were cus- there any aggravating factors? Do you know, like the aggravating factor is the heinousness of the crime. The heinousness, yeah. She was tortured, again, yeah. This much. isn't just a stabbing, yeah. and I, I don't mean to and demean other of course, stab victims, okay. but this was vicious. Yeah. Vicious, vicious. This, okay. And the fact that she was alive while being stabbed in the skull, her throat was cut. I mean, this is, she was assaulted in various different ways. So I think the heinousness is really mm-hmm. the aggravating factor so here. So do you think because he
1: was young, is that a speculation or did they interview jurors? Who said that? It's my speculation, okay, I'm to be just honest. Curious, yeah. I am know
0: it. It makes sense. I, I imagine so. I mean, there could be other reasons, yeah. but he was 18. So he mm-hmm. was a kid, and I'm yeah. sure they saw him as that way. Mm-hmm. He appealed, of course, but it was not granted. And he remains in prison uh, to this day in South Carolina. His appeals claim that his confession was involuntary and that DNA should not have been admitted because it was not generally accepted in the courts yet. Are you talking about a Daubert standard? Uh, I don't know. which. It's either uh, a Daubert or a Fry. I know we've discussed this in previous episodes, but yeah. there's two standards, yeah. Daubert or Fry, depending on the states. And yeah. these are the court cases that allow you to argue that expert testimony should or should not be allowed because it is not generally accepted in the scientific community yet. I think that's a bullshit claim. That the DNA wasn't accepted? Yeah. But it it wasn't widely accepted at that time.
1: At Not at that time, but... If they were to even retest it now, it would still match him.
0: Oh, no, and now, absolutely. Yeah. But the claim then was that it shouldn't have been allowed because it wouldn't Ow. have passed a Fryer or Daubert I hearing. I understand. Okay. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a bullshit claim we know now because we know about DNA. Yeah. But again, remember that's 1991 okay. you know, yeah. and it was not generally accepted or understood by the courts. I mean, look, Interesting, they, yeah. they're going to appeal on some grounds. Do I think the appeal should prevail? No, but yeah. appellate yeah. attorneys always have you know, some grounds. So his appeals did not prevail, and Ken was eligible for parole, though, this year, as we're recording 2022. And while Crystal's mother, Bonnie, is deceased, her relatives have pledged to oppose his parole at every point. But they also got support from the community, who is really still, that community was really torn up over this vicious crime, especially from one of their own, from, you know, a seemingly normal kid. Ken was also very involved in the church. He just didn't, you know, he didn't seem like the type, I hate to say it of kid who would have done this. In fact, there was a lot of support and a change.org petition, which we've seen before, was signed by over 2,600 people objecting to Ken register receiving parole. Even more surprising, he waived his first parole hearing, which means he'll be eligible again in two years. And I'd be curious to see what happens then. I think he waived it because he knew there was a, a sh- gonna be a real backlash against it. And people might also be asking as well why he's eligible for parole. Uh, This is really because he was sentenced under the old laws in South Carolina. So, you know, we talk often about how prior to the 1990s or the mid-1990s, laws were more indeterminate, which means open, and Mm -hmm. also means they allowed for a parole board to Mm -hmm. review you. Now, the laws have changed mostly when it comes to serious crimes, especially violent crimes, murder. You're not eligible for parole until at least 85% of your sentence. And often when they say life, that means life and you're not eligible at all. So he became eligible, though, after serving one third of his sentence. Wow. That was under the old system, as I said, though, and we wouldn't you know, see that happen now. However, it's the case that he will be up for parole again. And I am very curious to see if he waives it or if he goes for it. Any idea what he's been doing all this time? I don't know what he's been doing, so he could be a model inmate for all I know, but uh, I don't care because it is way too early for me. Oh, um, yeah. I'm not suggesting. I was just curious. I mean, the the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, he served or he's been in prison for 30 years. Mm-hmm. However, he's still in his 40s or he's just broaching 50 and mm-hmm. he's... I, I think he's too much of a threat at this mm-hmm. point. I don't yeah. want to... To be perfectly honest, we'll talk about did the system get it right, but right now, um, that's too soon. So mm-hmm. I'm glad he was... I'm glad he waived his parole hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I don't think
1: he would have got it anyway.
0: No, I don't think so either. And I hope he waives his next one, to be perfectly honest. Okay, we have to explain how this happened. Now, interestingly, Ken grew up in a loving home. He seemed to have a very normal childhood. He was a teenager involved in his church, involved in sports, friends. By all accounts, you know, what we look at, we're not seeing, you know, sometimes we talk about offenders who've had some very devastating childhoods. That's not the case here. Now, there were the warning signs that he was not developing quite right and he had anger. But the origin of this anger is kind of unknown, Amy. Some would say that he would have gone on to become a serial killer. Hmm. And I have to wonder. So on the one hand, the escalation of his crimes for sexual gratification seems to fit with profiles of... Many serial killers that we know, and you know I teach this, so Bundy, Bobby Joe Long, Colonel Russell Williams, they escalated. People don't start at serial Mm -hmm. offending. There's stalking. There's voyeurism. Mm -hmm. There's exposing yourself. Mm -hmm. So it's fitting in that regard. On the other hand, most serial offenders tend to prey on strangers and not someone they know. But I would bet that he would turn to strangers next, if I had to guess. And ironically, there are some like I just mentioned, Colonel Russell Williams. Do you remember him from Canada? No. I know you don't care to study anything serial offender wise, but he was—he was he a was captain of a, a major. Uh, was it Air Force Base or Army Base? I can't recall. Like a captain in the military, reputable. But he began as a voyeur, escalated to a stalker, and then moved on to become a serial killer of women he knew. Wow. So again. You don't always have to fit in the mold. If I had to decide, I have a very strong feeling that Ken Register would have become a serial killer as well.
1: Do you think the murder was premeditated or do you think he was hoping maybe he had a sexual advance and she denied him and then he just got rageful?
0: Yes, I think it was that. I don't think it was premeditated. You asked why he had a knife, but it could have um, yeah. been that, he, had you know, people do have yeah. knives in mm-hmm. their cars and, and some people carry, you know, army knives mm-hmm. or whatnot. Um I couldn't say for sure. Maybe it was premeditated. It did seem to his girlfriend that he was anxious to get going. But I think he probably, it was probably more likely that it was a sexual... Um, that he decided he wanted to hook up with her. Maybe yep. he knew
1: if she doesn't, I'm going to do it yes. regardless
0: of what happens. Yes. I want
1: her and that's it.
0: Yes. It's possible that yes. that, so
1: it was premeditated in some It's regard. certainly
0: possible. We don't know exactly because remember, he gave that story, that mm-hmm. that bogus story yeah. that was not true. Um, If I had to guess, I would say he fully attempted that he was going to have sex with her regardless. Mm-hmm. And you and know. he could have brought the knife with him knowing if things don't go my way then. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Or maybe he was just going to use it to intimidate her and then things got out of hand and yeah. his rage took over. Yeah. yeah, there are a number of possibilities yeah. here for sure. You know what I find interesting? He inserted himself. We yes. saw, what was the case you just covered recently?
0: Remember um, the girl was murdered and the guy helped the father? Yes, um, it was Kenya Monier. Yeah. If you look at that case, um, the offender absolutely did insert himself. And I think Ken registered the same thing. So people asked, too, why would he do this? In this case, I think Ken was just monitoring the situation. Mm -hmm. He knew her mother. He wanted to appear like he was a good guy. And then he could also find out what's going on.
1: You don't think he's a psychopath?
0: I think it's entirely possible. I often do profile people. And I think it's entirely possible that he is a psychopath. But I don't know the other... There's rate. Yeah. I usually have a raider, you know what I mean? We usually have kind of a, I don't want to say a cheat sheet, but yeah. there's ways that you can kind of score people. So when I look at some of these cases, I'll look at all these traits. I don't have all the traits, so I can't appropriately say if I think he is, but I I do think he would have become a serial offender, which probably would indicate yeah. psycho uh, psychopathology. You know, when we talk about nature versus nurture, yes. so this is one of those cases
1: where you can't look, so like, who knows what goes on behind closed doors? We don't know. Maybe he was abused, maybe he had- you know, a privately abusive household growing up, right? It could be. But it seems like this is one of those cases that he might have just like latent trait theory, right? He may have just been born with some sort of trait that, you know, just kind of
0: reared its ugly head. Yeah, often also when we discuss psychopathy, you look at like, you know, they do like brain imaging and other things and and the brains are different of Mm -hmm. people who are born with psychopathic traits and you can visibly see the differences. Yeah. So it's entirely possible that we don't know, you know, that he was born this way. Yeah. Or like you said, uh, there was something going on in the home that we're just unaware of. Yeah. But what we can speak to is whether or not the criminal justice system got it right. What do you think, Amy?
1: If he doesn't get parole, yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think it's not right that he only has to serve a third of his sentence before being eligible for parole. I think a th- How long has he been in 30?
0: He's been in 30 years, which would make him, if I'm doing the math right, he'd be about 48, 49.
1: Yeah. As you said, he's still pretty young. But, you know, I know I get some pushback for this, but I would be interested to know what did he do for the last 30 years? Because, Megan, we know people that have committed crimes a few decades ago, and I truly believe that they have changed and that they would be safe for society. I don't see that here based on, you know, the brutality of the crime?
0: I don't see that here. His history gives me pause. I I think that, I think he's still too young. And and remember also, serial offenders don't offend till later, usually. So he would be, would have been young, but a lot of serial killers don't age out of crime in the same way that other Mm -hmm. offenders do. So I'd be very concerned. I think for me, I probably think life is appropriate. I'm with you in some regards, you know, at some point, I want to see him age out of crime. He's, I don't want to see him get out until he's in at least his 60s. Yeah. And even then, I'm not sure, you know, would it be enough? But at least, you know, if he had spent 50 years in prison, he has a great record, he's rehabilitated, he's aged out of crime, perhaps he's redeemable. For now, though, I believe if he does not get parole and serves a more, much lengthier prison term, then the system did get it right. And I hope that um, for Crystal and her cousin who brought this case to our attention, for her family, I hope we got this case right today. Thank you so much, Megan. Like I said, I hadn't heard of this case and it's always important to bring light to stories we don't know. Yes, and I thank Crystal's cousin and the people who are willing to write to us and share some of their stories. You know, we're happy to cover them.
1: And also if you have written to us and we haven't covered your story, We get a lot. We have a very long list, so we apologize if we can't get to every case, but we hear you
0: and we definitely have that list going. Good point, Amy. Thank you. Okay. Before we go today, we also have questions from patrons. Amy, do you want to start us off? Sure. One of our questions is, do you ever use historical cases in your teaching? And as
1: part of that, what would you consider historical and this listener is referring to the latest episode on Ethel Rosenberg and whether or not you consider that case to be historical. So, Megan, as I've gotten older, it's changed a bit because I now teach 9-11 and it seems quite historical because most of my students were not born yet.
0: Yes, I know. I know
1: exactly <laughs> what you mean. But yes, I, I I always talk about historical cases
0: where relevant. What about you, Megan? I definitely use historical cases in most of my classes. I don't know what I would consider historical. That that changes. I think that's relative as well, like like you just pointed out. you know, Is a case from 20 years ago historical? Probably not. I think I still tend to look at historical cases pre-when I was born. <laughs> so pre-1970s, I'll just say. Um, but we do like to use examples when relevant. And it's interesting because crime is relative. It changes from time to time and place to place. But you can still see patterns if you go, you know, spanning back 200 years and you can still make comparisons. So it's definitely cool to use historical cases and not just current ones. And it's a little bit
1: different, but history is also important because when I teach the law to my students, there are many behaviors that used to be illegal that are now legal and vice versa. Absolutely. So the law changes with the time. So that's very much historical. Right. The next question is a little more lighthearted. Okay. How did you meet your significant other? Oh, do you want to go well, first?
0: You have a cooler story. I'll just say James and I met on Tinder. Oh, you must have swiped right. Huh? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, he had he actually was the only person who wasn't like holding a big gigantic just... <laughs> fish. or you know. <laughs>
1: Megan, I was just about to say,
0: was he holding a fish in
1: his profile picture?
0: No, but he was he did have one with our our dog Kaya in it. Um, and that was very cute. He had a great profile. Oh, very nice. Did he have
1: pictures with his nieces and nephews? No. Okay, good. Glad, I'm glad you swiped right. Me too. How did you meet Alan? We went to sleepaway camp together when we were 13 and we hooked up and then we <laughs> met in our 20s when I was living in New York, him in Philadelphia, and we had mutual friends. So we, we knew each oh, other, right. but we reconnected. A long, rekindled romance. Yes, very cute. Very cute. I love the lighthearted ones. Yes. The next one is a topic we talk about often. Do you feel like sentencing in the U.S. is too harsh versus, for example, the Nordic countries? Now, this listener is from Iceland who has a max of 16 years in prison for murder. And this listener says that they believe it is too lenient. But on the other hand, is it too harsh what we're doing over here? Should there be a middle ground? And I would say, yes, there should definitely be a middle ground, and I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all model. I think it's very case-specific.
0: I agree. I think, um, just to agree, I think a maximum of 16 years for murder is too lenient. I I don't think that's an appropriate sentence either, but we tend to be way, way overly punitive. So yes, it would be nice to not have a one-size-fits-all approach for everyone, and I do think that it's way, way past time that we restructure some of our sentencing laws especially as we talk about, you know, felony murder laws.
1: All right, our last question is from a listener, who wants to know, what do we think of a woman in her 50s pursuing a private investigator career and how would she get started at the requirements to pursue that career? So I want to also say that this listener does say that she would love to get into criminology, but due to the amount of education necessary, she believes she'd be too old to start any career. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think people are working much later than they used to. We don't live in a time where people retire in their mid 60s anymore I think most people are working even, you know, well into their 70s and 80s. So you're talking about a good 20 years of a whole new career. So I don't think that you should be deterred because of your age. Although
0: I do understand that. Yeah, Amy, I mean, James' mother went back to school in her 50s and became a nurse. So it's exactly the same situation. She started an entire new career in her 50s. And the only thing in criminology um, or criminal justice, you know, the only thing that, you know, once you pass 37, you can't enter traditional law enforcement like becoming a police officer. But there's so many other jobs. And I think that a private investigator is wonderful. Um, you do have to get a, a license. And so that varies. I will say this. It varies from state to state. So you're just going to have to look at your state's requirement. There's usually a program you can get certified. Um, I would say it's probably about three to six months. So I think it's really doable and I think it's great. We encourage you to go for it. I also think a good place to start, I often tell my students, is look within your own
1: networks. Do you or someone you know have someone in their circle that is in the career that you want to be in and then just talk to them because they can help you kind of navigate the
0: field in your particular state or county that you're in? Sure. Great advice. All right. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content, such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include WBTW.com, an episode of Forensic Files, an episode of Stolen Voices, Buried Secrets, MyrtleBeachOnline.com, and Justia.com. Seeking the truth never
1: gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death